Would you take your Bible, go to Isaiah chapter 52 now, and go look at that love. Isaiah 52 in your Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13. Just one word jumps out at the very beginning of this portion. Isaiah 52 in verse 13. Say the first word with me real loud. Behold. Just stop there for a second. Behold. See, what gets your attention today? Probably less and less as you grow older. Things don't shock you and grip you probably this much for day. We've seen a lot of things. TV, movies have exposed ours and the current generations with some of the most gruesome, some of the most awful, some of the most wicked things, and we're just not shocked anymore. If you took some of the things that you saw on the news yesterday and you showed it in a movie just 20 years ago, it would have been censored, it would have been shut down. Now, we expect it, even on the news. What gets your attention today? Now, probably, if a house catches on fire in your estate, boy, you'll get off the television and you'll run down there to go see the house burn, right? Maybe somebody comes in bringing a brand new baby and that baby's crying and everybody's gathering around. It'll get your attention. But we are asked to behold something this morning. It's like saying, look at this. What do you think about this? And here in Isaiah 52, it is not Isaiah speaking. It's God speaking. And he's trying to get us to take a very long, lingering look at what God is describing so that we consider every detail. We let it sink in. And let it do something. If you notice, verse, I'm going to read just 13, 14, 15. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished, we'd say astonished at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall, watch this, Shut their mouths at him. Won't be able to say a thing. For that which they, for that which had not been told them, they shall see. That which they had not heard, shall they consider. To astonish means to surprise us, to astound us, to dumbfound or overwhelm us, even to shock us. Because this one event in chapter 52 and 53 has the power to change, to convert, to transform, to repair, to release and bless every life of the person who just believes it. By the way, the book of Isaiah, you're holding in your, in your hand a book that has been proven to have been written 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. So, back about 1946, some, uh, uh, some nomads were, were uh, climbing alongside of this ridge it's called the Quimram Caves. And they climbed down into one of these caves and they got in there and they found scrolls that hadn't been touched for nearly 2,000 years. They opened them up and they found the book of Isaiah. They found the book of Malachi. They found Psalms. They found almost every Old Testament book in that cave. 
and, and they went and they got some, some uh, scientists and, and archaeologists and they brought them down there and everybody was shocked because here was a copy of the Old Testament that predated Jesus Christ. The oldest copy of the book of Isaiah was from 1100 A.D. And here, 1200 years earlier, they laid down the two copies, the hand-copied uh, uh, uh books of Isaiah, comparing them with this um, uh, fragile uh, scroll of Isaiah that was from 100 B.C. And guess what? Not a word had been changed. That's how accurate those copyists were. And so here, when, when God gives Isaiah a vision of the future, you better sit up and listen because Isaiah is going to say some things that will rock you to the core. And sit up and listen. And let's let it do that. Father, I pray that you would shake us and, and wake us up to what happened for us in the past. But what a sight it, it must have been as, as Isaiah saw these things and wrote them down and he couldn't believe it. Still to this day, it should be, it should be overwhelming what happened on the cross. Lord, if it's overwhelming... May it overwhelm sin today. May it overwhelm pride. May it overwhelm shame. May it overwhelm constant defeat. May it conquer depression, discouragement. May it lift and help every Christian. And may it convert every lost sinner in this room. Because that's what the cross can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I already read those three verses, there are a couple of things I want you to notice. He starts off there in verse 12. He says, Behold my servant. Now, what a way to talk. He's describing the Son of God. He's describing somebody that Isaiah can't even conceive. But he sees somebody out in the future and he sees this person serving. He sees this person wearing nothing but the, but the poorest of garments as he walks through the crowds and as he touches and heals, as he feeds, as he hugs, as he loves on people that were unlovable. He watched a servant. And he watched and he said there in verse 13, Behold my servant, who normally a servant is ignored when you'd walk into a room if there was a servant there. You didn't greet this servant. You didn't say, Hey, how you doing, butler? You passed by the servant of the house. You ignored the servant. You gave him your jacket. You, you, you left your shoes with him. You, you, you gave the keys. You never greet the guy who's driving your car to the valet. You, you just go, here, bring it back in better condition, you know? So here, God says, behold my servant. He's going to be exalted. He's going to be honored. He's going to be worshipped. He's going to be right at the right hand of the Father. What a thought. Here's, here's a Jew, unable to conceive that God was going to become a man. But this is what he's picturing. He's showing that when God steps down from heaven, he would step down into the form of a servant. Take your Bible. Turn to... Um, uh, uh, do I want to go there yet? Might as well. Philippians chapter 2. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Holding your place in Isaiah, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. 
Now go back to verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which also, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this way of thinking be your way of thinking. Verse 6. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, never took anything away from God being God, but made himself of no reputation. And took upon him the form of a what? There's our connection. And was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God, here's our best part, also hath highly, what's the word? You're reading Isaiah 52, but you're reading it in the New Testament. Hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That a name of Jesus nobody should ever use as a curse word. That a name of Jesus nobody should ever say something filthy or wicked. But at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under this earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, this servant will be honored. But before, back to Isaiah now, before that honored honor, before he is extolled and worshipped, such an astonishing contradiction will take place. As many as were astonished at a servant being honored, he now says everybody will be shocked at how a servant is lifted up and worshipped. But now this astonishment will turn into such a shock. And he says, he actually describes and he says, he says his visage was so marred more than any man. His form more than the son of man. What's a visage? It's what you see on the outside. It's your, it's your face. It's what's visible about you. I can't see your soul. I can't see your spirit. I can't see what you're thinking. But what I see on the outside, and what, I, what, what, what uh, God was revealing was the outside, the flesh, the body of this servant would be so marred. What does marred mean? Marred means, I looked it up. Uh, let me give you the exact because it, is, uh, it means to injure, to hurt by cutting. By uh, to wound and make defective. It means to ruin what once was perfect, as if to deform and disfigure. His visage will be so disfigured more than any other man. I don't believe there's any torture anywhere that can match what Jesus had to experience. Spanish Inquisition, and I read it all, there are, there are books out there that would absolutely, you couldn't keep reading. Not if you've eaten dinner beforehand. Spanish Inquisition, the drunken beatings of a woman, the abuse that people have had to experience all over the world under, under torture. They can't begin to touch what Jesus experienced on that final day of his life. You know, the most mistreated person on this planet was not you. It was Jesus. For what purpose? Look at verse 15. Isaiah 52, verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Don't we ever sing that song? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood. What happens? They lose all their guilty stains. What's the purpose of such a, a death? What's the purpose of such an event? 
paying the price for all nations, not just for the Jews, not for just some good Irish Catholics, which there aren't any, by the way. <laughs> he did it for all nations. He did the work of a high priest. I'm not talking about Catholic priests or Buddhist priests or Hindu priests, but one perfect Jewish high priest named Jesus Christ. And he sprinkles the payment of his blood over every sinful nation, over every sinful person, man, woman, and child. Because guess what? The wages of sin has always been and always will be death. So Jesus had to die. Well, how does God die? Coming a man. There will be no one that is not shocked. Anybody? That's why. That's why the uh, the world, the the television. That's why nobody wants anybody to read that Bible because it gets you. When you start to find out what Jesus did, I'm not. Ask, I'm not asking you to look at what Moses did or what Paul did or what Peter did or what Mary did. You look at what Jesus went through and it gets you. Amen. I didn't get saved because I was impressed with Joshua. I didn't get saved because I was impressed with with, uh, Adam and Eve. You know why I got saved? Because I was impressed with Jesus Christ. It gets you. Nobody doesn't read these things, especially whether you read what happened or you read about the prophecies of what was going to happen. It overwhelms you. So let's all consider this morning what happened at the cross and hopefully, prayerfully, let it affect us. Ask yourself, God, am I so numb? Am I so far gone that it doesn't, doesn't get to me anymore? Ask yourself, God, break my hard, numbed, full heart. Help me be moved again at Calvary. Chapter 53 goes on. and Here comes Isaiah as he begins to write. He's seeing... What God is talking about and comes the detail and it overwhelms him. He says, who hath believed our report? And to who? Whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? It's an unbelievable report. What you're about to read in chapter 53 is an unbelievable record of what was going to happen 730 years in the future. Now, what's crazy is uh, Isaiah is seeing things. I, look. If I showed you, I mean, if the Lord were tarry, he's not going to tarry for 700 years. I don't think he's going to tarry for seven more years. Well, let's say if I could show you what it was going to be like 700 years from now, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. I remember growing up with a, with a TV program called The Jetsons. It was a little cartoon thing, and people were flying around. They were living in, in, in orbital houses, stuff like this, and, and uh, uh, even the dogs had, had jetpacks on, you know? But what was cool was back in the 1960s, they predicted that TVs were going to be paper thin, that people were going to be able to talk on little handheld devices. And you know what everybody said? Ha, ha, ha. What a joke. Star Trek, you know. Scotty, you know, he's talking to a ship that's flying overhead at 18,000 miles an hour, and he talked without wires in the 1960s. And everybody went, yeah, right. That was just 30 years ago, 40 years ago. What if it was 700 years ahead? What Isaiah is seeing is, is like, nobody's going to believe this. <laughs> nobody's going to believe this. And he records what's going to happen to a servant. Somebody who willingly was going to let it happen to him. I didn't think anybody would believe. <laughs> nobody's going to believe what I'm about to write. Now, 
we discover an unlikely Savior. For he, this servant, verse 2, shall grow up before God as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, hey, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Now, the world looks to heroes. Oh, man. I mean, these guys are cool. Uh, I mean, I, when I was a kid, we were reading Marvel comics. Now, all of a sudden, everybody's reading them again and making movies out of them. It's a cool thing today for people to be, uh, you know, uh, all focused on the Avengers and Iron Man and Captain America. Heavy on the America, you know. These were all amazing people who had special powers and they saved the world, didn't they? Constantly. Well, Isaiah, when he looks out of the future, he sees somebody who has no hero characteristics. He only sees a tender, gentle child. How do you see that? Look at that. For he shall grow up. He's looking at a baby. He's looking at somebody. He says, this is the Savior. He'll be tender. Whoever this is will have no massive biceps. He'll have no secret bat cave. He can go in and type into the computer and find Google. He's like a dry root. You ever pull? You ever? Uh, Eric and I, we were looking for spears for um, uh, for men's camp. Did I mention? Oh, I shouldn't have told anybody we were looking for spears. Anyway, we were looking for wood for spears for men's camp there. And I said, hey, look at this. And I went and I picked it up and it all just fell apart. It was rotten. Isaiah looks out into the future and he sees the Savior. He says he's like a dry root. He's, he's brittle. He's, he's not strong. These are the things that you wouldn't expect of a Savior. He has no form. He is, he is, when, 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 when the Bible talks about his form, is it to say he has no fancy form. He has no style, no signature uh, act that, that defines him. There's no comeliness or beauty to him. There's, there's nothing that would make people desire him. And by the way, <laughs> he would never be hired by Hollywood. Can you imagine if they were making a movie about Jesus today and the real Jesus walked up, says, uh, can I get hired? They go, <laughs> you don't fit the part. We need somebody who's got long blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, big mice, biceps. That's what everybody wants. Jesus would not be hired by Hollywood to play himself. Moves on further. The servant is an unwanted man. Verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. We, we only thought he was worth beating and throwing away. He was not just undesirable. This was somebody who you just passed by. You know, when you were a kid, did you ever have a bully? Did you ever a bully that you're just standing there, you're in line, you're, you're, you're maybe eating your lunch, and the bully just come by there and just push you? Did you ever have one of those? Maybe a dozen of them? <laughs> well, that's how they treated Jesus. It says he was so, when, when, when they looked at him, he was only worth pushing and getting out of the way. That's how he was seen. He was despised and he will be firmly rejected by people, especially by men. 
I found in my history, I've been saved 35 years, I find women, they, they like him more than men do. And it bothers me, because if there was ever a greatest man on this planet, it was Jesus Christ. And if there's any inspiration that men need today, it's of Jesus Christ. But we've been so effeminized, and we've probably been in churches where we've been taught that Jesus was so weak, and he, was, he wasn't able to carry, carry his own cross, he wasn't able to, to do anything without his mother's help, and you got the wrong Jesus. On the outside, and in everybody's view, he looked weak. On the outside, to everybody, he looked plain. He looked uninviting. He looked uninteresting. He looked boring. But let me tell you, the greatest man who's ever walked on this planet was named Jesus Christ. And one of these days, you will stand before him either on his side or against him. And if you're on the side against him, you'll stand before him and you will see him as God Almighty and you are doomed. You better get to know him now. His people, he came into his own and his own received him not. Didn't want him. What Isaiah is seeing, go back here, what Isaiah is seeing shocked him. Here was God's answer to sin problem, to the heart problem, to home problems, to our money problems, to our health problems. And Isaiah watches everyone, absolutely everyone, pushing him away, not wanting him, closing their eyes to what was going to happen to this servant of God. Go to Luke chapter 23, holding your place in Isaiah. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter 23. In verse 13. <clears throat> Luke 23, verse 13. Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers of the, and the people, said unto them, You have brought this man unto me, speaking of Jesus, as one that perverted the people. Behold, I have examined him, having examined him before you, have found no fault in him, in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I therefore, I will therefore chastise him and release him. For of necessity he must release one of them at the feast. And they cried out, they, the crowd, cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man! Release unto us a criminal! Release unto us a murderer! Release unto us Barabbas! who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again unto them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Can you imagine who's shocked there? Pilate is. Everybody that Jesus, every light that Jesus touched walks away gobsmacked. Who is this guy? Verse 22, and he said to them the third time, Why? Why do you want him crucified? What evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priest prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. 
If anybody was unwanted, you'd say, nobody likes me. I'm rejected. Well, somebody knows how you feel. But you've never been rejected like Jesus was. He was an unwanted man. Also, an unhappy friend. Look at verse 3, back there in Isaiah 53. He's an unhappy man. What do I mean by that? Uh, well, you need, to, you need to go... Should have kept you in Luke. I apologize. Go back to Luke. Find chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 and verse 34. Luke chapter 7 and verse 34. Jesus is accused of many things. Look what he's accused of. Luke chapter 7 verse 34. The Son of Man, speaking of himself, He's come eating and drinking, and ye say, Behold, a gluttonous man. He wasn't a glutton, but they just mocked him. And a wine-bibber. Oh, he's a drunkard. Here's the best part. A friend of publicans and sinners. Boy, they got that right, didn't they? Hey, back to Isaiah 53. Now look at verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, but he was a man of what? Not Friday night parties. He's a man of sorrows, and he's acquainted with grief. Verse 4, surely he hath borne, he hath carried our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. Yet, instead of us thanking him, instead of us just honoring him, we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted him. Here's an unhappy friend that this servant was going to be. Yes, the friend of sinners, but he was be a man of sorrows. Well, a creative grief. How come he's so, how come he's so somber? How come when you find Jesus, he's praying in agony often? How come when he's walking and talking, he's so serious? Because he doesn't have any griefs of his own. He carries no sorrows of his own. I carry plenty of sorrows. There are things I wish I had done better. There are things I wish I hadn't done. There are things that I know that I'm going to have to answer for. Christ is none of that. Jesus, no reason to be sorry. And yet he carries sorrow, sorrows. Where did you get them from? Us. He's an You say, why aren't you happy, Jesus? You couldn't understand. He couldn't have even told you. Sometimes, sometimes, you know, we, we get this idea that, that we can't relate to Jesus. You better believe you can. Because he came just like you and he took every one of your sorrows. He took every one of your griefs. He took every one of your hurts. Everything you've ever lost. Everything you've ever battled. Every defeat you've ever experienced. And he took all the consequences on that. And he piled it on himself. And he kept going. One of the greatest verses in the New Testament. It says, when he was under the weight of our sin and getting ready to go to the cross... He fell and he prayed and he got up and he went to his, his disciples and says, will you not pray with me for an hour? And they would all just look at him like, oh, I'm so tired, Lord. And it says these words, and he went a little further. And then he went a little further. So Jesus never stopped carrying the weight of the world on him. That's a friend of sinners. You know, you get close to people. Tony will tell you. You start trying to help people in RU. You go out and you go door to door and you meet with somebody and you deal with people where they're at. You come away drained. You come away seeing how people are so in the grip and the bondage of sin. You come away and you can't but be affected. Well, think about one man taking on the effect of all of us and all the world of all time. So you say, hey, Jesus, why aren't you happy? He couldn't explain it. Now, there are times he was happy. He had children around him. 
children don't hang around sad people. But there were times when he was carrying our sorrow. That's what Isaiah saw, and he's just gobsmacked. He said, why would he do it? Again, I said he wasn't carrying his own grief. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hold your place in Isaiah, please. Hebrews chapter 4. He's affected by our loss and our hurts. And you know what you need to write next to your Bible? Next to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Thank God, thank God, thank God. Look at verse 15. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched. It's a double negative. Your teacher would, would be very upset if you were to write something like this in English. <laughs> it's called a double negative. But it's, got the, it's there for effect. It gets you to realize we have a high priest which can be touched, to see, it gets the way of saying it, with the feeling of our weaknesses, with the feeling of our infirmities. But in all points, he was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Thank God, thank God, thank God. He knows what you're going through. He knows how you feel. And he can say, I understand. And it gets worse. Pick up there in verse 4. He's an unreleased criminal. Verse 4 says he's borne our griefs and sorrow, carried our sorrows. That's one thing to actually take on somebody's sorrows, to weep with them that weep. Yet he was stricken, smitten of God. He was afflicted. Why? Verse 5, for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice those words, wounded, stricken, smitten of God, afflicted, bruised, chastisement, stripes. What's happening? Somebody's being treated as a criminal. Now, criminals, would you agree, should be the ones who pay for the crimes they've committed. Only criminals. Criminals should, be, should only pay for the crimes they have committed. Nobody should pay for the crime of somebody else. You know, honestly, I don't want to use Gavin because he's a good guy, but let's pretend Gavin's not a good guy. Gavin breaks into a bank, steals 100,000 euros, gets caught. They let him go and they come to my house and they take me, put me before court and they convict me and put me in prison for Gavin's criminal crime. How, how right would that be? It's just, it wouldn't be right. Amen? Nod your head. Amen. Yes, right. Okay. <laughs> Criminals should be the ones who pay for the crimes they have committed. It shouldn't be anybody. Nobody should have to pay for the crime of somebody else. That would be what's called a miscarriage of justice. Miscarriage of justice is when somebody is convicted and punished for a crime they did not commit. And it's happened throughout history. Some of you know about the Birmingham Six were said to have been innocent, but they were imprisoned and punished for 16 years before their crucifixion was, was overturned and shown to be an error. The Scandinavian languages have this word. Dan, Danish, Norwegian, and Swedish have a word called justitimord, which literally translates justice murder. It's in those languages and was used for cases where the accused was convicted 
and then executed. And then they found out that they were wrong to kill him. Guess what? Jesus was being convicted and was about to be executed for crimes he never committed. Doesn't that get you? I mean, if it was your son, if it was your husband, if it was your wife, if it was your mom, your dad, you'd be at the courts, you'd be at the gate, you'd be demanding for justice, wouldn't you? My father's not guilty. My son is not guilty. He shouldn't have to pay. You'd be upset, wouldn't you? Why aren't we upset about Jesus Christ? The greatest miscarriage of justice was when they cried out to crucify Jesus Christ and they cried out for Him to die. And then Pilate said, Okay, what? And a miscarriage of justice was carried out. He became an unreleased criminal. But an unfair exchange was taking place. Verse 5, keep going, verse 5 says this, but he was wounded for our transgressions. Huh. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he opened not. His mouth, he was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? Who's going to stand for him? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. Was he stricken? He made his grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. You know what? He and all that he is, was exchanged for us and all that we are. Look at the list. We've all gone astray. You know what that means, don't you? It means um, we've gone our own ways. We've done our own thing. We've disobeyed every law. You say, I'm a pretty good person. Let me bring out just the Ten Commandments. You know, there's 618 of them in the Old Testament if you want to try to live by goodness. And that's just the Old Testament. There's another 1,000 in the New Testament. You couldn't live by the law if you tried. We've disobeyed every law. We have transgressed the law, which means we have willfully broken. We have not just sinned. We have iniquity. Iniquity is we have not just done wrong, but we have caused wrong. We have affected people. We have done harm in our wrong. And yet he was tender and kind. He bore our sins. He was wounded for our sins. He was chastised. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was slaughtered. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. It opened not he his mouth. What an unfair exchange when we get forgiven. When we get healed. Somebody, somebody better just take a step back and go, that's an unfair exchange. What a crazy swap. Do you know what there is in heaven right now? There's no more record of my sin. Now, the devil's got a good memory. (laughs) But God's got a better one. Amen? God chooses not to remember. And here, there's been an exchange where 
The righteous died for the unrighteous. Where the innocent died for the guilty. Where the, where the judge stepped down and died for the criminal. That's unfair. You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it. Think about it. Every sin that we have ever sinned, that we have ever committed, Isaiah saw being laid on him. Think about it. Every sin you've ever done, every small one and every big one, every wrong thought, every wrong attitude, every sinful look, every hateful word, and not just your sins, but the sins of Hitler and Mussolini, the sins of Attila the Hun and Jeffrey Dahmer, the sins of Jack the Ripper, the sins of every lying politician and every murdering abortionist, the sins of every pedophile, homosexual, transsexual and pervert out there, the sins of every murderous dictator like Joseph Stalin, Pol Pot, Mel Tung, and Idi Amin. It's amazing to me that kids have no idea who these people are. We've been desensitized. We think that Xbox is life. We think that, that uh, our, the, the uh, EastEnders and, and um, uh, what are some of those stupid programs? I can't even... People sit there and watch. And, and they spend their life thinking that's life. You have no idea what this world has gone through. Every one of those wicked men, every one of the wicked women, every one of these, these people who you couldn't even be in the same room with, Christ died for. Every last sin was laid on his back. It was blamed on him. What kind of fair exchange was that? It's not fair. Do you know he never defended himself? Think about it, Dan. He opened not his mouth in defense. He let religious men falsely accuse him, then beat him, then drag him before Pilate. Then he let Pilate humiliate his case and make it I mean, it should have been a closed and shut, open and shut case of he's innocent. I find no fault in him. Get him out of here. You guys get out of here. But he mocked justice that day. Then the crowd, he let them call for his execution. He didn't say, hey, wait a minute. I helped you. Hey, Simon, I healed your daughter. Hey, Jarius. Hey, so-and-so, I fed you guys. He didn't ever justify his own self. He sat there and he let them cry out, crucify him. He let them. He let Pilate's soldiers whip him and mock him and beat him and strip him and then parade him through Jerusalem and nail him to a 15 high foot cross. He let them. That's unfair. And beyond belief, I'm sorry, there's nothing greater than what I'm about to say. He stayed on the cross. He stayed on the cross. I couldn't do it. You know, I, was, uh, I had this broken tooth up here. And the, 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 uh, I say, I'm, I, I've either, I don't know. I went to the dentist, then I went to another dentist, and I went to another dentist. Each time they're jabbing you with those, those torture instruments. And, uh, you know why I went to that? I couldn't handle the pain. <laughs> I gotta get this thing fixed, amen? That's just one tooth. Jesus took it all and stayed on the cross. That's unfair. Because he did it for me. So I should be on that cross. You should be on that cross. You and me should stink and be left abandoned on the cross to die without God, without hope. That's what we deserve. 
Would you say it's unfair that he took it and I walked free? Why? Look at verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He, God, hath put him to grief. You know, everything I did wrong, I was hurting Jesus Christ, but in the end, you know who really put all my grief on him? God did. Please the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou, God, shall make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see a seed as if to say, his future, there's, there's, this is not the end. He's going to prolong his days, make them forever. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in this servant's hand again. He shall see the travail of this servant's soul and shall be, what's the word? Satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify. And every time I see the word many, I always put the word so in front of it. Because it's not just many like a few dozen. It's like so many like billions. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I, God says, divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. Jesus says, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down myself. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bare the sins of so many and made intercession for, not the good people, not the religious people, but for the transgressors. You know what he was doing? He was providing unlimited forgiveness. Jesus was going to do something that no one else and nothing else could ever do. In the Old Testament, it was lamb after lamb after lamb after lamb. It was, it was a scapegoat. It was, it was an ox. It was constant uh, incense. In constant uh, burning of incense, constant uh, 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 giving of sacrifices, never did God say enough. Until one day, one day when one man cried out, "It is finished," and God said, "Now it's enough. Now it's enough." The book of Hebrews ought to be just labeled the book of the, of, of perfection, the finished product. It is finished. Jesus pleased God. Jesus satisfied all the injustices of history. You say, what does it mean that he satisfied God? God is a holy God. And if there's been wrong, believe me, God will bring justice. You better be, you better be careful which side you're on and that day. But all of the injustices of the world will be satisfied. He will justify and pardon, and I like this, any sinful man. The people you think that God... And God can't get him. That person's so far gone. If he's still breathing, there's hope. And he would bring a word called atonement. That word is such a wonderful word. Two enemies. They just, they just have every reason to hate each other. They have seen nothing but the other person hurt them, do wrong to them. And atonement is when you take them and you make them at one And they become the best of friends. And that's what happened Jesus took away every reason for God and me to be enemies and he brought us together and he did that through Christ. That's why Jesus is great. That's why we sing out. At least some of us do. That's why we love church. At least some of us do. 
We love getting around where there's more preaching, where there's more lifting up Jesus Christ. Because you know what it's going to be like in heaven? It's going to be wild. Every time somebody gets to heaven, you know the first thing they want to do? Run to one man, Jesus Christ. And if you're just so laid back, I wouldn't want to embarrass anybody. I don't want to, I don't want to be a fool. I don't want to be fanatic. If you're going to heaven, you will be. The only thing that's going to keep you from exploding in heaven is a new body. Amen. Because you're going to fall on your face before Jesus Christ and you're just going to glorify and worship and praise for about 10,000 years before you finally say, all right, I better, I better go find out where my mansion is. <laughs> Provide an unlimited forgiveness. And I mean unlimited. He's able. That's why you now, now you know why he's able to pray, Father, forgive them. Because he paid the price. Jesus carried every one of our sins to the cross and he died paying the penalty for every last one of our sins. See, Jesus made sure that prayer could be answered. Wow. You know, I, um, I, I, my, one of my family members, my brother actually, he was in the hospital with a friend of his and he was telling me this. I think I gave you this illustration, but it's very true. Uh, where um, it was a very risky uh, operation and it was an emergency operation. And so my older brother, his wife, and, and several people gathered around that hospital bed just before this woman was going into the theater. And they all gathered around. They were holding hands. And they began to weep. They began to pray. And then somebody came in and grabbed their hands and started listening. And they all looked up, and it was the head doctor. And, uh, uh, why are you here? And he says, well, because we need to pray. <laughs> He said, you need to pray that I can, I can finish what I'm about to try to do. Because I'm going to do my best, but I need God. And I tell you what, they started to pray, amen. And that's what we need to do, folks. We need to see that when we're praying, Jesus is up there interceding for us, saying, amen, amen. They're now believing what I did for them. And I can carry it all the way through. He, he made sure that that prayer request would be answered. You know, have you let him make the exchange? It's kind of a quiet exchange. It doesn't happen with lightning bolts. It doesn't happen with earthquakes. It doesn't happen with, with you know, uh, angels singing all around. There's a quiet exchange where you and God do business, we say, where I come from. And it's, there's, there's just that surrendered, broken, empty life. You're not just, you're not coming to Jesus and says, you know, Jesus, I'll take you for a Sunday and, 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 and I'll call you next Sunday when I need you. You know what it is? It's crying out saying, God, will you accept me? God, will you take me? And you know what? He has never turned anybody away. Have you let him make the exchange? There's nothing Jesus didn't die for. There's no sin that you committed. There's so, no sin that you ever will commit that he hasn't already fully and completely paid for. It's unlimited. But it can never be experienced by you unless your self-righteous pride finally breaks and you start all over. Jesus said to a man named Nicodemus, an old man, he said, Nicodemus, you want to see the kingdom of God, don't you? Sure. Then you've got to start all over. You've got to get born again. You're a very intelligent man, Nicodemus. You've got the Bible all figured out, don't you? Start again. This time, read it as a child. This time, read it 
looking for me. So what happened on the cross? Seven things. Number one, something unbelievable. To this day, people read it and go, this is over my head, as it should be. I'm glad it's beyond my comprehension. I'm glad I can't, I can't conceive of it. I just read about it and I just go, wow. You know, the centurion at the foot of the cross looked up and saw everything happen to this man, paraded through the streets, unjustly convicted as a criminal, whipped and beaten beyond recognition, flesh dripping off of him, blood pouring out of him. And he looked up and he said, truly, this was the Son of God. Odd. An unlikely Savior was born. What happened at the cross? This man who was to be the answer of all the world's problems came into the world. But he didn't look like a savior. He wasn't educated like a great man. So they rejected him. There he was taking all our sorrows and our griefs. I'm glad he took my sin, but he also took my sorrows too. He became the guilty. He accepted an unfair exchange. He tried to put the blame on me for what Dan did, and I'll fight you all the way. Jesus didn't. And he gave unlimited fair, uh, forgiveness. What are you going to do now? I know what I'm going to do. Hmm. I'm going to praise him. I'm just, I'm going to, every once in a while, just let loose. I'm going to raise the hand. I'm going to raise both hands. <laughs> I'm going to shout. I'm, I'm going I'm to look forward to coming back tonight. I, I, I can't wait to get into my Bible again and read more and look, look for the living Savior who loved me, gave himself for me. I, I tell you, when God calls a man and we fight it and we struggle and God says, I need you, I'm going to use you. And we say, no, you know what you haven't got a good look at? Jesus. When you're afraid to step out, and I've been there, you've got a gospel track in your pocket. Somebody stands up there, comes up to you and asks for directions. And you go, do I give him a track? Do I not? <laughs> look unto Jesus. Remember what he went through. What are you going to do now? Jesus earned the right to direct our steps, didn't he? To get our attention, to keep our attention. You know what I've watched? I've watched our teenagers. I've watched teenagers go through youth camp. I've watched them go through Bible clubs. I've watched our teenagers uh, come through great preaching and, and great teaching in the teen group. And then some pretty girl gets their attention and they're gone. Does that grieve you? Some hunky guy who's just drooling and the girl's gone. Keep your attention on Jesus Christ. Let Jesus Christ shake you to the core. Get your attention so much that nothing can shake it. Father, we bow before you. In such awe of what happened 2,000 years ago on a cross, there was nothing more that that Paul yearned to preach about than the cross of Christ. To the lost, it is foolishness. But to the saved, it is the power of God. We can't get enough of it. We love what happened at the cross. Because at the cross, we experience love. If we could only just Sit and linger for a little while. Behold, a little longer. It might just fix our homes. 
It might just fix our attitudes. It might just fix our waywardness and our stupid backsliding. If only we got a good look at the cross and realized He loved me. He loved me as failed as, 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 failed as I am. He loved me. And He did all that out of love. How can I love Him less? How could I? How could I? mistreat that name? How could I let anything be more important than serving a servant? Why can't I do that? Why can't we humble ourselves and say, if you ask me to serve anywhere and do anything, you've earned the right to ask. And if you compel any convicted heart this morning to bow the knee, and to confess they're lost, without hope, without God. And, and God, if, if anybody has earned the right to convict us of our sin, it's you. Would you please convict somebody this morning and not miss today. They can't put off until next week what they must do today and they must be born again. Don't let them put off getting right with you, getting forgiven by you, walking out of here a new person, not by my power, not by laying on of hands, not by baptismal waters, but by faith alone in what your son did on the cross. Let them cry out to you right now, God. And let every Christian in this room rejoice. Our records are clear. Our positions are sure. Our, our, we're accepted in the Beloved. Because of the cross. Because there was a day where we came lost, but now we're found. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the cross. Everything hinges on that day. So I worship you and I love you. I pray we never get over it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Grab your hymnal.